Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Crown and Crozier, the podcast on church, state, and faithful citizenship. I'm your host, Patrick Brown. In Dignitatis Humanae, its Declaration on Religious Freedom, the church states that the right to religious freedom has its foundation in the dignity of the human person. Moreover, according to church teaching, it is an essential duty of governments to safeguard the religious freedom of citizens and to refrain from denying the free public exercise of religion in society. Joining us today for a discussion on religious freedom is Father Deacon Andrew Bennett. He's an ordained deacon in the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church in the Eparchy of Toronto and Eastern Canada. He also serves as Senior Fellow at the Religious Freedom Institute in Washington, D.C. and as Director of the Religious Freedom Institute and Faith Community Engagement at Cardis in Ottawa, Canada. From 2013 to 2016, Father Deacon Bennett served as the Canadian government's first ever ambassador for religious freedom. In this episode, he shares his thoughts on the need for governments to fulfill their responsibilities in promoting religious freedom. And he shares some stories from his time as a diplomat, including a moving encounter with persecuted Christians in Pakistan and the power of their faithful witness. We also talk about how robust religious freedom depends not just on an absence of coercion from the state, but first and foremost, on believers understanding with clarity and conviction what they hold to be true, and having the courage and competence to live that out in the world. One final note, our discussion with Father Deacon Bennett was actually the first podcast interview we ever recorded. As first-timers, we made some rookie mistakes when recording, and so there's some occasional noise in the background. Rest assured that this episode will still make for an enjoyable and informative listening experience, and that it was a good opportunity for growth and humility for us here at Crown and Crozier. With that mea culpa, let's get the show started. Thanks again for tuning in. There are two swords, and the question is which sword is superior, the spiritual sword or the temporal sword? And without God, democracy will not and cannot long endure. I die his majesty's good servant at God's first. Thank you so much for joining us today. We are delighted to have our guest, Father Deacon Andrew Bennett. Welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Patrick. It's good to be with you today. It's tough to underscore the importance of the issue we're going to be talking about today, religious freedom. And we're absolutely thrilled to have a guest of your caliber with your background and experience to help us cover it. Certainly today, in the midst of COVID pandemic, the issue of religious freedom has perhaps amplified in its importance and criticality more than ever. And I think a lot of our guests will be really intrigued by the experience that you bring to the table, in particularly in your former role serving in the Canadian government as ambassador of international religious freedom. So, so maybe particularly for our listeners who are perhaps unfamiliar with the role, the function that you previously performed. Maybe you could just tell us a little bit about how the office came to be back in the year 2013. Sure. Thanks, Patrick. The Office of Religious Freedom was created in uh, 2013, as you mentioned, in uh, what is now the Department of Global Affairs Canada. At that time, it was uh, in Foreign Affairs. The, the office came about as a result of a commitment by the previous Conservative government in uh, their election manifesto in 2011 to establish this office. 
And how that came about is, is actually quite an interesting story, as I learned. In, I believe, 2010, uh, early 2011, the previous Minister of National Minorities in Pakistan, Shabazz Bhatti, came to visit Canada. And he has some Canadian connections. His uh, brother and his, his brother's family live in, in uh, the GTA. And he came to Canada and met with, at that time, Minister Jason Kenney, with Prime Minister Harper, a number of other government officials, to talk about the situation in Pakistan. He had a responsibility for advocating on behalf of all different minority uh, religious communities in Pakistan. So that would include Shia Muslims, Sikhs, Christians, Parsis, Zoroastrians, uh, and others. And he talked about the challenges that he faced in this role and that he was basically under constant threat, threat to his life, and there have been various indications that he might suffer for his work. He made such an impression on the conservative um, cabinet at that time that they thought this is a really important issue, and the broader issue of religious freedom was gaining greater international attention. Uh, the Americans had already had an Office of International Religious Freedom in the State Department, uh, for a number of years. That had been established in the mid-1990s. And so there was sort of this general international trend. Uh, Shabazz Bhatti returned back to Pakistan, and shortly after his return, he was assassinated. And this had, a, I think, a profound effect on certainly Prime Minister Harper, uh, at that time, Minister Kenny. And so the Conservative Party in that election in uh, May 2011 committed to establishing this office as part of their foreign policy uh, priorities. So it finally came into being uh, in February 2013, and its mandate was to advance international religious freedom through Canada's foreign policy. So it sounds like you had buy-in from the top, from the prime minister, from the cabinet. Although you had that level of buy-in, you know, you're starting a brand new office from scratch. So perhaps can you just talk a little bit about what the early experience was getting the office off the ground? Well, that's an interesting story as well. In many ways, this was a, a public servant's dream uh, to be handed a brand new shiny mandate, a new office that uh, had never existed before. And I think most of my colleagues uh, in the Department of Foreign Affairs really didn't quite know what to make of it. There was a lot of scuttlebutt in the media that this was simply sort of a sop to uh, minority communities in the country, to the conservative base, that this was really just a political move. And I was aware of that, and my, my career had been in the public service, and so I was not uh, a political actor. I was not you know, a partisan player, and so I think that helped me when I entered into the Department of Foreign Affairs. And so I had you know, a bit of a pedigree within the public service, and so I think although I did know some people within the Department of Foreign Affairs, I was a bit of an unknown quantity, and so I think they, were, they had me on, on observation for a while to see how this fellow was going to act. But I, I would say that I had a, a fairly warm, if at times cautious, welcome from my colleagues. But I found that through the three and a half years that I was there at Global Affairs, it was generally a, very, a fairly positive experience. And I found that I had the support that I needed. Now, I think given that the Office of Religious Freedom was sort of a fundamental plank in the government's foreign policy, that helped. So I'd certainly had the support from uh, the minister and, and the deputy minister. I do remember being in Ottawa at that time and hearing some of those rumors. So that's actually really encouraging to hear that you had that buy-in, uh, not only from the, the cabinet, but also 
perhaps a more warm reception uh, or a more uh, constructive reception from your colleagues in the civil service uh, when the office was being established. So you have your team, you have your office, you have your desk, you're issued your diplomatic passport. So where do you start? I mean, one of the benefits we had was that we were already narrowed down because we were only focusing on international religious freedom. There were those in the country who were keen to have me focus on domestic religious freedom and had me wanting to respond to questions on domestic religious freedom. And I was, I was really fortunate because I could just say, not my mandate. Now, that being said, we were able to advance and speak about religious freedom overseas because, comparatively speaking, in Canada, we have robust religious freedom. Now, I think we probably want to move on to that topic a little bit later on. But internationally, the situation was quite grave in many countries. And so we adopted a fairly strong sort of methodological approach where we looked at uh, existing research that had been done on the state of religious freedom in the world. We looked at uh, what various uh, international organizations had been saying in various reports on, on the state of religious freedom. So we consulted the United Nations, we consulted the United Nations has a special rapporteur uh, for uh, religious uh, freedom, freedom of religion or belief. We looked at what the certainly the American you know, the State Department was doing. We looked at what the European Union was doing on religious freedom. The Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe uh, had a strong sort of engagement on religious freedom through their Office of Human Rights. But then we also looked at what various academics were saying about the state of religious freedom in the world. And so I began to build uh, strong connections with centers of academic expertise, such as the Religious Freedom Research Project at Georgetown University. I had a good grounding in religious freedom there at the Berkeley Center for Religion and, and World Affairs. But then we also looked at a number of very helpful indicators for the nature of religious freedom and the strength of religious freedom. And so the Pew Forum... Um, for many years has produced a, a report that looks at uh, the level of government restrictions on religion and the level of social hostilities by one group against other groups within a country and uses those two key indicators as a measure of what the state of religious freedom is in a country. So just to illustrate, a country such as China, which uh, has always been in my kind of troika of baddies in terms of gross violators of religious freedom, along with uh, Saudi Arabia and Iran. China uh, has virtually zero social hostilities by one group sort of persecuting another group because of what they believe. But it has very, very high government restrictions uh, on religious freedom. So high, in fact, we can look at the poor uh, Uyghur Muslim population in, in Xinjiang, uh, in the northwest of the country that is now experiencing a genocide because of of their of their faith and because of their religious beliefs and how they want to to live out their their Muslim faith in China. Nigeria uh, historically in the last twenty years has been a country with very little restriction by government on religious practice, but fairly high degree of social hostilities. Now that's been tempered recently. But certainly when, you know, in the early 2000s, there was a lot of tension between the Christian and Muslim population. Some of your listeners are probably aware of, of Boko Haram, which is a, an extremist uh, Islamist group in northern Nigeria that is in the business of kidnapping. There's the attempts they've made to, to disrupt relations between Christians and Muslims. But again, Nigeria, very limited restrictions, really, if any, on religious freedom at the level of government. Pakistan is kind of 
the perfect storm in many ways. You have government restrictions on religious freedom, especially on uh, sort of minority Muslim communities like the Ahmadiyya uh, Muslims, and then also fairly uh, significant social hostilities uh, between different groups, including against Christians. So we began to look at which of the countries have the highest levels of government restrictions on religion and social hostilities. We chose um, a series of countries where we would engage, and that helped us to narrow our activities, both in terms of our policy work and in terms of our programming. We had a programming budget of about $4.25 million per year, which allowed us to partner with different organizations, some small faith-based organizations, some much larger multilateral organizations, uh, to try and address some of the root causes of violations of religious freedom in certain countries. And so we start from the very beginning, we began to narrow uh, what our focus would be and began to work with partners who we knew could help us advance the mandate. After you've done that kind of triaging exercise and you come upon a country like Pakistan that ticks multiple boxes, how do you go about engaging? I can understand it's a little bit of an awkward situation. You knock on the door of a foreign country. You don't have the best message to deliver. How do you get your foot in the door? I think at the very beginning, I wanted to meet with uh, different communities, Pakistani communities uh, here in Canada, including Pakistani Christians, Ahmadiyya Muslims, the Sikh community, other communities that were very aware of what was happening in Pakistan. So I wanted to engage with them to better understand the situation. But of course, that's, that's not sufficient. You have to be able to do a lot of in-depth reading, very, reading various reports by people that have been active in the country for a long period of time, obviously getting reports from our high commission uh, in Islamabad, and being familiar with sort of the, the security situation in the country. So you have to, you've got a pretty steep learning curve to begin with. I then began to reach out to Pakistani uh, embassy officials here in Canada and tried to have a dialogue with them on, on some of the concerns that, that our office had. Then we began to uh, look at who were some of the key organizations that were on the ground in Pakistan that were doing good work at trying to address some of the, in many cases, the very deep divisions in the, in the society. You know, what were they doing that were helping to address some of the social hostilities, at least, uh, in the country? And so I remember uh, we received a number of proposals. Uh, we had a number of calls for proposals where organizations could submit proposals to our office that we would then evaluate. And in the end, I think we funded between two or three projects in Pakistan that, that tried to address some of these root causes. I made a visit to the country in March 2014 and had a chance to again meet with a lot of the communities that were facing persecution. I met with our allies who have embassies uh, and diplomatic representation there to get their thoughts on the situation. Uh, met with Canadian High Commission officials, engaged with Pakistani media, Pakistani politicians, uh, made our concerns very clear to government ministers, uh, including the minister who is responsible for uh, sort of minority communities, uh, the education minister, and it was a very, I thought, a very fruitful trip. Uh, I was under no illusions that we were going to get the Pakistanis to change overnight. But I think, along with a lot of our allies, who were also engaged on the question of religious freedom in Pakistan, including the, the Americans, the Brits, uh, the European Union, we were able to, I think, put pressure in a number of areas. And I, I've found that certainly in the last number of years, there's been 
uh, some positive changes in Pakistan, but there's still a long way to go. And I think there still needs to be ongoing pressure and engagement uh, on questions of religious freedom in that country. I just want to explore a bit more the allies with whom you worked. You mentioned previously that the U.S. Department of State has or had a Office of International Religious yep, Freedom. Still was, has. Was that, is that staffed or led by an ambassador? Yes. So it's governed by the International Religious Freedom Act. So that act created a number of institutions, uh, one of which is the Office of International Religious Freedom in the State Department, and that's headed by the ambassador at large for religious freedom. The bulk of my time that I was uh, acting as ambassador for the Office of Religious Freedom here in Canada, I worked with a, a really able ambassador at large uh, down in Washington, Rabbi David Saperstein. David and I became great friends, and we, we even uh, worked closely together on a number of files. We did a joint visit to Myanmar, and David and I are still, still in contact from time to time on a variety of, of different questions. The International Religious Freedom Act also created the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom, which is a, effectively a bipartisan commission made up of a variety of people who have expertise uh, on questions of, of religious freedom. And they, like the State Department, uh, produce an annual report that looks at the situation of uh, religious freedom in various countries, and commissioners are empowered to go on missions to various countries to examine situations there. And excuse me, I had a very a fruitful relationship with the commission and a number of uh, former commissioners I still continue to engage with on, on a variety of issues. So the, the American apparatus for this is quite robust. And I think uh, my colleagues at Global Affairs, before they stood up the office uh, in, in 2013, I know there were some consultations with, uh, with the Americans on, on how their, their office was set up. Ours didn't come into effect through an act of parliament. Ours, because of the way our system works, came through um, a decision of cabinet, and I was a governor and council appointment. So a different, different situation in the United States. Uh, so we worked very closely with them. We worked closely with our, our colleagues at the Foreign and Commonwealth Office in London and had very fruitful, again, relations there. Um, I would probably get to London a couple times a year for different events and uh, would meet with, with my colleagues at the FCO. Also found that the Dutch, uh, the Germans, uh, the French, uh, the Danes, many of our other European allies were, were very engaged on this issue. The European Commission has um, a fairly uh, robust apparatus to address uh, freedom of religion. So it was, it was really a great opportunity to engage. There were lots of fora in which we could do this. One of, I would say, the singular achievements of the Canadian Office of Religious Freedom was to establish, for the first time ever, an opportunity where, where diplomatic officials could come together to have conversations about religious freedom. We had various groups of parliamentarians that would come together to discuss questions of religious freedom in, in different countries. But in the spring of 2015, we established a body. Uh, this was a, at a meeting at the residence of uh, the Canadian ambassador to the European Union, in Brussels, we, we set up a contact group uh, amongst a variety of different countries where we'd be able to engage with one another on questions of religious freedom and discuss how we might cooperate in terms of advocacy, policy engagement, and programming. So during your time uh, as ambassador, you were representing the government of Canada. 
how how would you characterize or how would you describe the kind of signal that it sends from a government to its people to other nations to have that kind of dedicated capacity there there might be a school of thought and maybe i can just play devil's advocate here there are all these there there are many fundamental freedoms we can look at our canadian charter of rights and freedoms certainly freedom of religion enjoys a privileged place in that document but there are other fundamental freedoms freedom of association freedom of assembly freedom of the press why is the promotion of those freedoms not supported by a dedicated ambassadorial capacity so i'm just curious to hear your thoughts on the type of signal that it sends uh, to have that support within the state administration well i think very simply it demonstrated that it was a priority and certainly the evidence bears this out uh, when you look at the situation in the world, the latest few uh, forum study on this shows that you know three quarters of the world's population live in countries where there are very significant either government restrictions or social hostilities involving religious freedom. So there's lots of data and certainly evidence out there that this is this should be a priority. Uh, for countries that value religious freedom and value religious freedom as part of a of a vibrant pluralist uh, democracy. Now, the argument that you've just advanced, Patrick, is the same argument that former Foreign Minister Stéphane Dion advanced when he closed the Office of Religious Freedom. He said, "Well, you know, we shouldn't we shouldn't prioritize one human right over other human rights. Uh, we have to sort of advance them all equally." Well, I think that just demonstrates very sloppy thinking. You know, one can advance international religious freedom and not neglect the other freedoms. You can still advance freedom of the press. And I know certainly in our foreign policy, there's a lot of work that's done on freedom of the press, on all sorts of other freedoms. You know, in Canada for a very long time, we've had uh, a cabinet minister or a secretary of state who has responsibility for the status of women. And we should have that. Because there's still ongoing challenges with, with uh, equal rights for women, equal pay, all these various questions. And so for a long time in this country, rightfully so, we've had a minister or secretary of state for the status of women. Does that mean that we're prioritizing that over other freedoms? That we're prioritizing quality rights over other freedoms? I don't think so. So I think that you know, governments have the capacity to establish a number of priorities and the argument that was made uh, in 2016 when the office was closed, I think, was a very narrow argument. You can certainly advance religious freedom. The problem was, is that the government that came in power in 2015 doesn't like talking about religion. And certainly doesn't think religion has a place in foreign policy, let alone public policy. Uh, so I think there is an ideological position uh, that was being advanced there. And that's an ongoing challenge, I think, in the field of, of advancing religious freedom. It, it becomes sometimes a political football, um, whether we're talking about domestic religious freedom or uh, international religious freedom. And as soon as you politicize a fundamental human right that is established as the first fundamental freedom in the Charter, in Section 2A, it's uh, established very clearly in international human rights covenants. As soon as you politicize that and you make a partisan football out of it, whether you're conservative or liberal, that is inappropriate. We can advance religious freedom because all of us as human beings have a fundamental right to pursue meaning, pursue truth, 
And religious freedom is not just for, for religious people. Whether you have a theistic view or whether you have a, a secular humanist view or an agnostic view, an atheist view, you pursue a particular philosophy as opposed to a particular religious faith. Religious freedom is a universal, fundamental human right uh, because all of us are hardwired in a certain way. We have as what you know, Rabbi David Novak at the University of Toronto calls a, a metaphysical need as human beings. And so while I see that you know, a government can come in and change its priorities, I think that the rationale for doing so in the case of the Office of Religious Freedom was a very weak rationale. There is still an Office of Human Rights, Freedoms and Inclusion uh, at Global Affairs, which is effectively the successor, but it doesn't have an ambassador. It has a director who heads up the specific group that looks at religious freedom. But now it's, it, it doesn't look at religious freedom alone. It's religious freedom through the lens of dot, 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 dot. I think Canada was a leader, if I may humbly say, in advancing religious freedom and its foreign policy. We had established, I think, a very reputable position in that regard. And I think that has sort of whittled away over the last five years. I think this is a good point of transition from your experience in that role. And that kind of leads us into the second portion of uh, what we're hoping to cover here with you. You know, recognizing in our own backyard here, in the state apparatus, there was a capacity, there was a role removed from the promotion of religious freedom. Among other questions that it begs is, well, what next? <laughs> what, do, what do we do now? If not this, then what? And you're obviously still very active, very engaged in the issue of religious freedom uh, through your work at Cardis. Where are you focusing your attention uh, so I've, I've stepped back somewhat from uh, international religious freedom over the last couple of years. My work with CARDIS is solely focused on uh, religious freedom and freedom of conscience here in Canada. My work that I do as a senior fellow at the Religious Freedom Institute in Washington is again focused more on, on domestic North American uh, religious freedom and freedom of conscience. But I still have a, a, an eye open uh, to uh, religious freedom in certain countries. Um, and I'm still asked to engage uh, from time to time on, on different international religious freedom issues. But much of my focus now is on domestic uh, religious freedom. And this comes back to a point that I made earlier, Patrick, which is that if we want to be able to defend religious freedom internationally, we need to ensure that we have robust religious freedom at home. And I'll give you a very clear example of how this was made clearly aware uh, to me. I was in Turkey in fall of 2013. Turkey doesn't have the best record uh, in terms of religious freedom. It has, over the various decades, expropriated land, expropriated buildings from Christian communities, uh, in particular from the Jewish community. And they continue to frustrate uh, the ability for different faith communities to fully uh, live out their religious freedom. And so I went to meet with various uh, religious communities in Istanbul, in Ankara. And one of the last groups that I met with in, in terms of my meetings in Ankara, I was meeting with various government officials, is I met officials with uh, the Ministry for Religious Affairs in Turkey, which is uh, known as the Diyanet. And the Diyanet has been around for a very long time. And it is one of the largest ministries in the Turkish government, and it is responsible for regulating religious activity of all faith communities, including the majority Sunni Muslim community in the country. And so I went to meet with them, and 
this was, as I said, in uh, late 2013. So in late 2013, an earlier Quebec government was trying to advance uh, a charter of secular values. Uh, this is under previous Premier Pauline Marois. And so that was sort of happening back home domestically. And I had a meeting with officials at the DNet, and I raised the concerns that I had about uh, religious freedom in Turkey, and uh, they patiently listened to me. And then the most senior official said, well, thank you very much, Ambassador Bennett, for bringing these issues to our attention. Um, can we discuss with you the situation in Quebec? And I thought, well, touche, that's, uh, you've been well briefed. Uh, they were right to call me on that, even though I didn't have control as, you know, as a diplomat uh, for what was going on in Quebec. But that was a very valid argument to make. So coming, coming back to your, your earlier question, now I realize that if we want to speak about international religious freedom and to advocate for international religious freedom, we have to have robust religious freedom at home. And so I've decided now to focus on the questions of religious freedom in Canada, because as one friend of mine put it to me a little while ago, our fundamental freedoms really are like delicate orchids. You know, orchids are these beautiful flowers, and they're pretty robust. Uh, but if you don't take care of them, they will quickly wither up and die. So we have a responsibility in Canada not only to say that we have these fundamental freedoms, but you actually have to live them out. And that comes with responsibilities and duties. Very intrigued to hear that anecdote from your Turkish counterpart. It's the effective rebuttal of get your own house in order first in their response to you. Now, keep in mind, they were being a bit cheeky because the situation in Turkey was much worse for religious communities than in Canada. So, Oh, I can imagine. <laughs> Exploring that a bit further, under the theme of getting our own house in order and then looking outwards once our own situation as optimal as it can be. Do you subscribe to a school of thought that would argue if you focus on really nurturing freedom of religion, a lot of other things will fall into place. And there is indeed, perhaps there, there is indeed a hierarchy of freedoms. Do you think there's merit in that argument? Perhaps not as you just uh, framed it. I don't like necessarily using the word hierarchy to describe freedoms. Now, that being said, in the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, the fundamental freedoms that we have in Section 2 are privileged, and they, there is a certain privileged status for them over other rights enumerated within the Charter. And why is this? Well, because fundamental freedoms are inherent to us as human beings. These are freedoms that exist uh, and that we bear simply by being human. They are not the gift of the state, and they cannot be taken away by the state, ultimately. And so I think religious freedom and freedom of conscience is a very important freedom, though, within that, that box of fundamental freedoms, because in many ways, excuse me, a lot of the other freedoms attach to it. So you need to be able to have the freedom to exercise your most deeply held beliefs. So even if you're in prison, you still have religious freedom. Even if you've, if we think about, you know, you know, the apostle Peter in the book of Acts, thrown into prison for professing the risen Christ. But even while he's in prison, he's still praying. He still has his faith. So our inner life, we're always free in our inner life. 
religious freedom is about the public living out of that inner life. It's, it's the public manifestation of our faith. And so that's why it's important, because we don't just live our faith inside. We don't just live our faith at home. We don't just live our faith in the comfortable pew. But we are called, especially as Christians, to live out our baptism by undertaking corporal works of mercy, by engaging in uh, acts that promote truth and justice and goodness, compassion, so forth. And so our faith is a public faith. It's not a private faith. To say that it's a private faith is both theologically inaccurate and it's historically inaccurate. So when we speak about religious freedom, this is an inherent freedom that we bear simply by being human. Other freedoms are related to religious freedom because religious freedom is fundamentally about, as I said, living out what we believe. Again, whether that's a religious belief, a theistic belief, or whether it's a philosophical or atheistic belief. You have to have the freedom to live that out so that you can express yourself, so that you can associate with people, so that those other fundamental freedoms can be fully lived out. So I would say that those fundamental freedoms are sort of bound together. And perhaps in some way, freedom of conscience, freedom of religion is kind of the glue that, that helps to bind them all together. And so this is why we have to, when it comes to these fundamental freedoms, we really must live them in a, uh, I would say a vigorous, a vigorous fashion, because that our democracy is grounded upon them. We can't just say, well, I have these freedoms and I'm going to sit sit back and just enjoy them. No, no, you have to, you have to actually live them out. All of us are called to do that in different ways. Some of us are called to be, you know, religious freedom advocates. Others are called just, you know, maybe you're a, a doctor and you're called to live out your religious freedom through your work as a physician or as a lawyer, or even as, you know, someone who stays at home with their kids and you engage in various you know, activities through your children's school and you want to be able to express what you believe when you're asked by people. And so we have to have a freedom to be able to express what we believe because that's very much inherent to who we are. And that's why certainly in the Catholic tradition and more broadly in the Christian tradition, religious freedom is so bound up with the concept of human dignity. And the Second Vatican Council document on religious freedom is called Dignitatis Humanae, on or about human dignity. And so these inherent freedoms, uh, as I said, they are not the gift of the state. They are inherent to us. They help to reveal uh, our dignity as human beings created in the image and likeness of God. This is wonderful. I mean, there are so many implications to what you're saying. On the one hand, for citizens who are aspiring to be faithful, it's the old saying, with rights come responsibility. So yes, we, we enjoy freedom of religion inherently, naturally, but there's an onus on our shoulders to live that out in the public square. And then on the flip side, an implication of what you're saying for the state is to acknowledge how true freedom of religion is truly exercised. It has that public component to it. Do you think that the origin, the source of, of many of the challenges uh, in terms of safeguarding and protection of freedom of religion, do you think we can pinpoint the source as that lack of understanding on the state's part 
around how freedom of religion has that inherently public component? In part, but I, I wouldn't necessarily pin it on the state. We can tend to get into these you know, false binaries where we, we draw you know, these distinctions, these kind of unhelpful distinctions between two entities or two groups. Mm. And I think in a representative democracy like Canada, uh, we have to be very careful to kind of talk about the state and us. You know, the state and the citizenry, us, us and them. Because, like I said, that's a, a false binary. We are the state. You know, we have representative democracy. And the state, if we, if we follow sort of Catholic social teaching, you know, the state is a product of human reason. So we have created the state. Now, not all of us are invested deeply in the, in the workings of the state. We're not all elected officials. We're not all public servants, you know, so forth. But, but these are our fellow human beings. They're our fellow citizens and so forth. And so I think some of the challenges we're experiencing with an understanding of religious free, freedom right now is a broader cultural issue that affects all of us, whether we are uh, involved in the public service or, or parliament or the courts or the media, wherever we might be, I would say, generally speaking, in Canada and in North America more broadly, there is an amnesia around religious freedom. And that amnesia comes in two forms. The first type of amnesia is the amnesia we find in our public institutions. So in parliament, in the legislatures, in the courts, in the media, uh, in corporate boardrooms, so forth, where we're not supposed to talk about religion. We're not supposed to actively live out our faith. We're not supposed to clearly draw upon our religious traditions, our religious beliefs to guide our public actions or our, our public reasoning, let's say. And again, this is just, again, historically inaccurate. This is, this is a, um, a postmodern understanding of the role of religion and the role of belief. Those that would champion a secularist perspective and who call for a neutral state, well, it's not neutral. It's secular. And secularism is a belief system. And it has its rituals, it has its creeds, and so forth. So let's, let's be honest about what we're talking about. You know, there are many different belief systems that exist within this country that Canadians adhere to. Some are theistic belief systems, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, what have you. Others are secularist, where there's not supposed to be a religious, uh, a religious sort of import to them. So that's, that's, that's a challenge. We have to be very honest. We have to be very honest about what sort of state we have. It is not a neutral state. It is, it is a secular state. Now there's two types of secularism, which I'll get to in a minute. There's also an amnesia within our faith communities. Christians are the worst offenders in this regard, where we believe that, you know, I live out my faith, as I was saying earlier, in the comfortable pew at mass on Sundays, and then maybe at home. But when I go off to work in the morning, go off to engage in something public, I take my faith and I put it in a little box as I leave the house. And then I come back later on that evening and I pick up my faith again. 
that is not living out one's faith. Because we need to, again, religious freedom is about a public faith, a public living out of faith. And in both amnesias, both the ones that we experience with our own faith communities, where we don't live out a public faith, we don't want to talk about you know, our faith, and God forbid I make the sign of the cross in a public place when I'm about to eat. If, if, we're, not, if we're not comfortable doing that, we have to ask ourselves, why am I not comfortable doing that? Why am I not comfortable speaking about my Christian faith when I'm asked to publicly defend my beliefs on a certain matter. We have to ask what's going on there. And I would say that both with institutional amnesia and the amnesia within our faith communities, there is, again, uh, this uh, postmodern myth that religion is a private matter. Yes, religion is a private matter, but it's not only a private matter because we are integrated human beings and we we have many different parts of our lives we have our public lives we have our private lives and you can't sort of turn your faith off off and on that's that's just schizophrenic um and so religious freedom is there to ensure that we can fully live out our our religious beliefs so i think i think um coming back to your question this amnesia these different types of amnesia have really disabled us in this country so on, on that note, what are your prescriptions or what are some of the, the solutions uh, that you've been looking at in terms of tackling this amnesia? And I would be remiss if we didn't look at that question from the angle of what's going on right now in terms of limitations on freedom of religion that have been imposed in the context of the COVID pandemic. Perhaps leave us uh, with what you see as the appropriate and the effective path. Well, let's let's start with our faith communities. And uh, since most of your listeners are are Catholics, I'll speak you know for us as Catholics. We need to know our faith. We need to, in some cases, be recatechized, and to know what is it that we believe as Catholics. Uh, at the most fundamental level, what is our what is our our creedal faith? What does it mean to be a Catholic? What does it mean to confess the incarnation and the resurrection? And what does that mean for how we engage the world? And so we need to know our faith, and then we need to know how to communicate that faith. You know, to engage in effective apologetic for the faith. Whether you are a religious freedom advocate, whether you're a bishop, uh, whether you're a student, whether you're a doctor, whether you're uh, a mother or father at home with their kids, you need to be able to, given your particular context and your particular place in life, your particular vocation in life, you need to be able to articulate what you believe. Because if we believe this to be true, if we believe that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, then we have to be able to communicate that. So that's the first step, is understanding what we believe. Then, as we enter the public square, we need to be able to engage effectively. Um, we can't just be the guy that, you know, walks around uh, yelling at people that the end is nigh, you know, the kind of the stereotypical <laughs> crazy apologist with his sandwich boards, you know, the end is nigh, the end is nigh, the end is nigh. The prophet of doom. The prophet of doom, right? But there are ways that we can engage. Now, 
I don't mean by that early example to say that protest is wrong. Protest is important. There's an important place for protest. And there's an important place for silent protest and being, being heard. And that's why, for example, you know, 40 Days for Life is such a wonderful witness to, to our faith and to what we believe about the incarnation, about human life, and, and certainly about freedom of conscience. But we also, depending where we are in life, we need to be able to use and to exercise our vocation, our public vocation, in a way that allows us to be fully ourselves and to fully champion what we hold to be true as Catholics, as Christians, or members of another faith community. And so that means we need to know how to be able to engage publicly. How do we, how do we speak in the corporate boardroom about our faith when called upon? How do we know how to speak in the public service, or at our university, or in our school, or you know, whatever our vocation is, how do we live out uh, our Catholic life, our Christian life, in a way that is, that is integrated? So we have to be formed so that we can speak, so that we can engage. And, and we need to really work at that. Uh, the, the responsibility is very much upon us. We shouldn't be blaming others for the, the lack of, for the perceived restrictions or whatever we might have. We need to be able to speak out and we need to be able to exercise our fundamental freedoms and to engage our democracy. On the question of limits, such as we've been experiencing uh, during uh, the various lockdowns associated with the pandemic, we need to have an understanding of what are reasonable limits. And I think early on, when we weren't sure what was going on with this, I think the, the limits that were placed, for example, on worship uh, were reasonable, because we didn't really understand what was going to be the impact of, of this pandemic. But now we see quite a patchwork of restrictions across the country. And increasingly, I'm convinced that a lot of these limits are no longer reasonable. And I think uh, there is evidence to point to that fact, uh, certainly in terms of, you know, the science and certainly uh, the evidence on not only stopping the spread of the virus and protecting those most vulnerable, but also the, the risk to people's health to people's mental health, people's psychological and spiritual health. And as someone who is engaged, you know, in a pastoral ministry as a deacon, I can tell you that, that a lot of people are, are struggling. You know, in some provinces, there's real inequality in terms of how faith communities uh, have been unfairly restricted. BC is the most obvious example, mm. uh, where you have absolutely no public worship happening right now. All the churches and, and uh, temples and synagogues and so forth were closed, but people are able to dine in restaurants. People are able to engage in other ways publicly. So that simply is a violation of Section 2A of the Charter. It's a violation of, of a fundamental freedom. And my good friend, uh, Dr. Brian Bird, who's a, a brilliant lawyer with expertise in, in religious freedom and conscience rights, has written two very good op-eds um, over the last couple of months in the Van Vancouver Sun on these questions. So I'd recommend your readers to have a look at what he's uh, been writing. So this is, this is a major challenge and we need to be able to step up. Um, and it can't always be the bishops. We shouldn't expect that the bishops are always the ones that have to speak. We have to be there as lay people and as clergy uh, to speak as well, because the bishops need our support. And that's why we need to be well-formed. And for those of us that have an understanding of these issues, we need to be there uh, as the church with, uh, with the bishops, with other members of the clergy to speak out 
and where we see uh, we believe something is wrong, we believe something is violating uh, our religious freedom, we need to speak out because we do have a voice and we need to be able to speak out charitably, reasonably, and in truth. And so that would be my, my last comment, that we, we live our religious freedom not simply for the good of our own faith community or simply for the good of ourselves, but for, as the great Orthodox theologian Alexander Schmemann said, for the life of the world. Mm. I lied. I'm going to get you to have one more closing thought, you know, given your experience in the Canadian government with the benefit of, of everything that you saw, everything that you witnessed, everything that you experienced and championed. Does that experience in your past role, does it perhaps grant you a, a dimension of optimism? Having experienced what you experienced, what would you want to, to share with our listeners in that regard? Sure. Well, I mean, I think as Christians, we have to be even better than optimistic. We have to be hopeful because, you know, the victory has been won. And our role as, as faithful servants of, of our Lord is to live in a spirit of hope and to bring hope into our communities and to live that resurrection life and to be very hopeful and, and to engage uh, and to be bringers of hope in a time when there's, I think people are starving for that. I've been very blessed to have a number of experiences that I think continue to strengthen me and continue to grant me great hope. And the one that comes to mind, uh, I'll mention uh, Pakistan again. When I was there, I went to visit a small colony, little neighborhood of Christians in Lahore, in the, in the Punjab. And this little neighborhood of little warren of winding streets uh, is called Joseph Colony. And a few months before I arrived there in uh, March 2014, a member of that community, uh, Salman Masi, had been reported, basically, uh, or had been overheard, supposedly, blaspheming the Muslim prophet Muhammad or saying something. Anyhow, word got out to the surrounding neighborhood, which are, these Christians are surrounded by their Muslim neighbors. Word got out that some Christian had said something disparagingly about Muhammad. And so before you knew it, there was a group of uh, basically a mob that came and firebombed Joseph Colony. Now, thankfully, the word got out and most people were able to get to safety and there wasn't a serious loss of life or, or injuries and so forth. But, but a lot of the homes and buildings were seriously damaged. Now, to the credit of both the federal government in Pakistan and also the, the government of, of the state of Punjab, they put in a lot of money to help these people rebuild their lives and rebuild their homes. So I went to visit at the invitation of previous Anglican bishop, the Anglican uh, Bishop Emeritus of Lahore, to go and visit this community. And Patrick, it was amazing. We arrived at sort of the entry to this community, at the end of this sort of road, and there must have been 150 people there. As we got out of our car, we started walking along, and people were putting garland upon garland of roses and flowers around the necks of myself and the bishop, and we were greeted by an Anglican priest, and the people were throwing rose petals down on us. And I, it was the most humbling uh, experience, an amazing experience. And so he greeted us and he said, well, we're going to walk and I'm going to show you Joseph Colony. And as we began to walk along, these Christians, Pakistani Christians, began to yell at the top of their voices, King of Kings, Jesus King, Alleluia. 
as we walked through these streets, this cheer would go up. And I thought, these are people who have just experienced a firebombing of their, of their, of their neighborhood. They're under constant threat from extremists. And they were loudly proclaiming their faith as we, as we walked through these streets. And I thought, boy, that's witness. And so I think about times like that, and I think about people that I met, um, really living saints, people who have experienced persecution, and also the people who are willing to stand up uh, and stick their necks out in defense of those who are being persecuted for their most deeply held beliefs. So I've been very, I've been very blessed to see and meet those people. And so that is what inspires me uh, today. And anyone who comes into my office at Cardis will see uh, a photograph on my windowsill, and that is a photo of Shabazz Bhatti, uh, the Pakistani you know, minister who was assassinated for standing up for the beliefs of not only his own Catholic community, but for all these communities uh, that were experiencing persecution. So my last, my last, I guess, word is to uh, always be hopeful and that we have the communion of the saints, all the martyrs and confessors who have been great witnesses, both living and those that have gone on to greater glory uh, to inspire us. And so we should not be downcast or without hope, even at a time that seems to be very difficult. And it is difficult in many ways, especially not being able to worship as we, as we would normally like. But the resurrection is still true, and we must still have that hope. Father Deacon Andrew, I cannot think of a more beautiful note on which to end our conversation. Father Deacon Andrew Bennett, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for all of the work you've done promoting, championing religious freedom. Uh, and we thank you so much, and we wish you all the best, and God bless. Thanks, Patrick. It was a blessing to be with you. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Crown and Crozier. If you haven't already done so, please head over to your favorite podcast player and hit subscribe. Also, we'd love for you to give us a rating. This helps us reach more listeners. If you enjoyed the episode, perhaps you consider supporting us with a donation. You can visit our website, crownandcrozier.com, and just click the little heart or the link in the show notes. Looking forward to having you with us again soon as we continue to explore all things church, state, and faithful citizenship.